Proctor here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. If you don't have plans for July and want to learn more about Scala, meet new people, and visit the Polar Seaside at the same time, you may be interested in participating in Scala Wave. Scala Wave 2017 is the second edition of the annual Scala Conference for the Baltic Sea region. Last year's debut edition proved that the conference is becoming an interesting part of the Scala scene in that region. It is held in beautiful Donks, Poland, and this year it lasts two days, the 7th and 8th of July. The first day is workshop day, and during that day there will be seven workshops and an open source hackathon being held. The second day consists of ten presentations, all focused on topics related to Scala programming. Tickets are now available, so make sure to visit scalawave.io to find out more and register. Euroclosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on July 20th and 21st. Euroclosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in 2012, the conference is a great place to meet closure developers and learn about what is happening in the language, in the community, and in companies using closure. Visit 2017.euroclosure.org for more information and register. BusConf is a nonprofit open space unconference about functional programming taking place from the 3rd to 5th of August in Germany near Frankfurt. They provide a platform for people to meet, teach, and learn about functional programming related topics in any language. Ticket registration is already open and you can find out more at www.bus-conf.org. Elixir London is a one-day conference on the 17th of August that encourages inclusion and diversity within the Elixir programming community. To help do this, ticket prices are low, with Early Bird at only £119 plus VAT, and there are also 30 free scholarship places available. Jose Valim, the creator of Elixir, is confirmed to Keynote, and the full schedule is to be announced next week. Visit www.elixir.london for more information and register. Strange Loop is coming up. Strange Loop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through the 30th at the Peabody Opera House. Registration opened June 8th, so make sure to visit thestrangeloop.com to keep updated, as tickets tend to go very fast. PWLConf 2017 is the second full-day Papers We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at Strange Loop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th. Last year's event was a great success, with talks ranging from designing networked systems to game engines. Conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets are $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org as speakers are still being confirmed. Open F Sharp will be taking place the 28th and 29th of September in San Francisco. Taking place in the heart of San Francisco, Open F Sharp features two days of F Sharp talks and workshops with world-class speakers and a unique opportunity to connect with the F Sharp community and some of its key contributors while learning about the latest developments in the F Sharp ecosystem. Tickets are currently on sale and early bird pricing ends June 30th. For more information and register, visit openfsharp.org. RacketCon is October 7th and 8th at the University of Washington with one day of speakers and one day of collaborative hacking. Their keynote speakers are CS professors Dan Friedman, co-author of the classic reference Essentials of Programming Languages, and Will Bird, inventor of Minikanron. Details and tickets are available through the webpage at con.racket-lang.org. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain on October 26th and 27th. Early bird tickets are sold out, but student tickets and regular price tickets are still available. For more information, visit www.lambda.world. CodeMesh will be taking place the 8th and 9th of November. Keynote speakers David Turner and Margaret Seltzer are already confirmed. 
Very early bird tickets are sold out, but early bird ticket sales start July 21st. More details can be found at www.codemesh.io. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you'd leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Chris Proctor, and this week with us we have Cristiano Hazbert. Cristiano, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? My name is Cristiano, as you said. I live in Germany for about five years now. I've been doing a lot of Wakama lately. I'm involved with the Mirage project, which is a unikernel project. And I wrote the DHCP implementation for it, and now I'm writing SSH. Yeah, I think that's my functional beginning there. And that's how I got you on the radar, was some Twitter messages, notifications, action stuff, where I saw you were doing your SSH project in OCaml yeah. and around Emirage OS. So wanted to get you on and talk about some of that and kind of compare to and debunk some of the myths of OCaml and the like not being systems-level languages, considering there's Mirage OS that's meant to be unikernel and a very everything else. But let's just start with your background. How did you get into software to begin with? And then we'll move on to how you got introduced to some of the functional programming ideas. So I think when I was eight I was was learning to read. We learned to read with seven and eight. My mom got me an MSX. That's a Z80 clone that we had in Brazil. Well, the things didn't go much forward. I couldn't proper read and, and, you know, I couldn't speak English as well. But by the time I was 12, I got a PC, like uh, it was a Cyrix clone. And I think two years later, a neighbor showed me Linux, right? And then this was just after the Matrix stuff. And at that time, you could have like this desktop with matrix themes uh, and you would have like the green background and so on. And it was super awesome. And it's okay, I need to run this. So this was pretty much the main hook to put me into serious computing. Then I started playing with Linux and at that time it was quite rough just to get it running. And fast forward like two years from that, I was comfortable using Linux and I started doing some apprenticeship for some kind of system administration. This was back in Brazil, and there was pretty much like no Linux culture or very few. So anything you could do, it was like more or less an asset. So basically, I was hired to spend half a day after school just playing with Linux, like setting up a DNS server and setting up a DHCP and so on. And almost nothing of programming, like a shell script here and there. So nothing really serious. And then I came to the age to actually go to university like two years later. And I wanted to do anthropology, to be honest, right? But then some stuff happened to my life, and I actually had to have a decent profession, and I, I wasn't sure I was going to support myself. And I was doing this computing stuff, so yeah, why not? So then I started doing computer science. I did five months of it, and then I skipped. I jumped out, came back with information systems, 
Then I skipped again, like I jumped out, and then I went back to computer science. And then at that point, I was pretty much settled on being a system administration, just like configuring stuff. I think today people call this DevOps, I don't know. But no programming at all. I thought, you know, this is for smart people. This is not for me and so on. And then at some point, I realized that, that I was configuring all this demons and all these Unix systems and so on. And I had no idea how this stuff worked, right? And that was kind of embarrassing. I felt really bad. And then I said, okay, I have to learn to program. And I'm really into this Linux stuff. At this time, it was really just Linux. I was really into the ideology of it. You know, this freedom stuff. I ate a lot of that stuff. The new guy said at the time, now I'm older, so I can get past that. But I was really indoctrinated into this stuff, right? And then I started to learn to program or try to learn to program. And being in Brazil at that time, I had absolutely no group or friends to exchange stuff, especially if I wanted to do like Unix C, like Linux C programming. And that's so I got a KNR book and I tried to read it. And and at first I got a Portuguese translation. It was like even the Portuguese didn't make sense. It was just so badly translated. Then I got the English and then I moved forward a bit. And then I got the major Unix tomes to learn how to, how to do like the 70s, 80s, Stephen Richards, 90s and so on. And then at this point, I was pretty much sat on being like a Unix programmer guy, right? And um, there was this guy in our city. I'm from Porto Alegre. And there's this guy, Marcelo Tosacci. I don't know if you ever heard him. But he was the Linux maintainer for 2.4. So the, the main maintainer, right? So Alan Cox, like I said, this is the next dude. Alan Cox maintained 2.2 and he was going to maintain two. And this guy was like 19, right? He was over 19 Latin American Great guy, like, and I've, I've met him. And so this guy was like our hero, right? So we had a whole generation of people just wanting to be this guy and so on. So at that time, people wanted to be kernel hackers. I think today is not so sexy anymore. So fast forwarding a bit, then I joined university. And I honestly believe the solely job of my university was to remove all the fun I had in programming. Big code, Java formation, and so on. Most of my professors didn't really program. I still think this was pretty hard. Like I, I almost quit like a billion times, right? I was going home and doing like this mini projects. At the time, I wrote like a proxy for MSN. So like I actually implemented five versions of MSN in C, but pretty much alone and like no support and so on. And I think that was a that was pretty important in my formation is the the lack of group, the lack of community, the lack of where do I run to, right? So lots of books. And then, of course, then you go to the internet, right? And then you start joining communities. But it, I think it's pretty tough to do stuff without the local room. But I got through university. And at some point, I started doing OpenBSD stuff. I really couldn't get Linux to work, to be honest. I was using it for like seven years now, six years, I don't know. And I still think it's a mess. I think it's a great kernel. And I work with it sometimes. It's but the mid layer is so confusing and I, it's just so complex and there's no documentation. And then if you want help, it's there's a teenager in a forum talking about some magic you should. And then OpenBC was pretty much the solution for this. this. At least this is what pitched me up, right? So it's like incredible, awesome documentation. Like it's like really good written by the guys who actually wrote the software, not like a teenager on a PHP forum or something. Up-to-date documentation and very clean, very simple, very like Unixy. 
And then I think I was like, I think I was like 20 at this time. So it was like 11 years ago. And so this is great because this is, this gives you a north. This gives you some more like a support. And I have, I know where to run to if I have a problem. I, I think OpenBSD is very developer friendly. I think this is something that people don't think much about it. So if you want to learn C and you want to do like hardcore Unix stuff, kernel, OpenBSD is a pretty good place to go because the community support is really good. So I was pretty much doing this and then I started getting involved with the project and then I got an account and I was an OpenBSD committer for a while, for I think three years. And it, that was mostly my formation, right? At this point, um, the experience I had with functional programming was when I was younger, I was I used to classify lots of people. So, and I had like functional programmers in this group of smart people, right? And I used to look up to them and they used to talk stuff and I couldn't understand what they were saying. I have a very bad formation on language and so on. But this was something that fascinated me. The way they talked was like, this is great, right? This is, they would sell me the idea just on an emotional basis, right? Although I couldn't understand it. So in university, I, I tried playing with Scheme and then I bought the Little Schema, which is like, a, it's a very introductory book on how to think recursively and how to think in a functional way. And I did the book, it was really good. And then I was, you know, I could do some Scheme but then I had nothing to use for. And it was like, okay, this is a language. And eh, I didn't see that. It didn't catch me. I didn't see why. There's nothing to do here. This is just another language. But then, of course, I got older and I started thinking, okay, now, and then there's this rise of functional programming in the last, I don't know, six years or something. More stuff showing up. So this was always like something in my back. What is actually nice, and people say, oh, once you start writing pure, pure code, you know, no side effects and so on, you know, the world opens to you. And strong typing is like the best thing God ever made and the lack of void or the concept of void or, or so on. This is stuff that really helps you. So at this point, like I came to Germany to work with OpenBSD for a company. Uh, I'm basically going to do secure systems. Military, governmental, private also. So my current job basically is like I'm a performance engineer. I make I make the OpenBSD kernel scale. Right. So we have like 20 CPUs and we want to do cryptography and I try to make use all of them. So this is pretty much like what I would like to say I'm good in. And I think three years ago I um I had some disputes with the OpenBSD guy and uh, I started working for a fork in, in OpenBSD. It's what's called Bitrig. Because I wanted to like modernize OpenBSD because OpenBSD is really bad in like multi-threading, right? So I, uh, the kernel was pretty much big locked until one year ago. It still is almost all of it, but there's some progress there. And I started working on this fork and, and so I'm, I'm going to like rewrite the interrupt handling system. I'm going to implement kernel preemption. And I did all that. And at some point it was like pretty nice, I think. But I, I never committed. I had this like this huge branch, right? And we used to keep syncing this OpenBSD base into our base, this Bitrig base. And at some point we did this and it broke. It completely broke. Like, and I couldn't find a bug. And then there was a company hackathon, like, and I spent like six full days, like 10 to 10, trying to fix the bug. And, and I never found it. And then I said, oh, I can't do this Unix as a hobby anymore. I need to do something else. Right. And then I heard that Anil, the, the main Mirage guy, he's just known, uh, he knows some people in my world and my company. And he was writing like Okamo code and he's, he's running DNS in a unikernel. And I said, well, what's a unikernel? Right? 
So basically, he, he removes all the libraries and so on, and he runs directly on Zen. And everything is in OCaml, so the drivers are partly in OCaml, partly in C, and so on. But it's like it's this minimal system where he can implement a daemon. And it seems to be fun. And this was pretty much the hook. Like, it was really, I just, it was a two-minute pitch, right? And I was just pissed with doing Unix. And I needed to do something else. And then this idea of, ah, you know, okay, now maybe now it's the time to see how this functional programming stuff actually goes. Maybe now I can, you know, I'm older, more experienced. Maybe now I can understand what this is all about. And I think that this was like 2014 around. Yeah, I think late 2014. So basically, I went to, okay, let's learn Okamo. And so what were the resources? What do I go for? At that time, I think there was around eight months since since the book of Anil, this main Mirage guy, and other two dudes. They wrote Real World Okamo. I think inspired by real world Haskell. And I, I bought the book and it's pretty easy to read it. I think it took me like a month or so and tried to do some exercises. And then I started writing, you know, WC in OCaml or CAT. Let's, let's write NetCat. This really traditional Unix utilities. And then it started ticking me that, okay, yeah, it's really hard to write a bug here. I mean, it doesn't compile, right? I'm here and I'm, it's really strong typed, right? And I'm trying this and it doesn't compile. And, and then once I got it to compile, I had like one minor mistake maybe or something. But I was fascinated by how much I could start trusting the compiler. Because, you know, if you're writing C, especially if you're writing kernel code, especially if you're writing kernel code that was originally written like 35 years ago, PSD stuff, you learn to trust nothing, right? It's like you, you get completely defensive. And then in no kernel, I could write stuff, and if it compiled, you know, there was a good chance that this was right. Then I would say, like, okay, that's that's something there. I still didn't understand why all of it, but I started to see the beginnings of all this functional programming pitch. And then there was they, they had this page on Mirage, and maybe I should explain better what Mirage is. Just So Mirage is basically it's a unique kernel system. Uh, they provide, like, a bunch of libraries. Everything is in OCaml. So, for example, there's a library for TCP, there's an IP stack, there is a console logging library, and and you compile them all together into a binary, and originally this binary would be like a, a Xen image. And then you pretty much run this image above a Xen, and, and at this point there's no proper operating system, there's just one address space with the OCaml runtime linked with all these libraries, and the libraries know how to send a packet, receive a packet, read the time, and so on. So this was, then I started learning about it, and this was very attractive to me because in a sense, I was trying to get away from legacy code. It's really interesting to write kernel code and so on. It's not so interesting to adapt 35-year-old code, right? It's any, you know, stuff that was designed for one CPU, and now you're working with like 20, and there's hyper-threading and blah, blah, blah. So in a sense, I was like, how do I start from scratch? It would be great if I could just like write code and not care about all this behind. And this was one of the main philosophies of Mirage. We don't want to have legacy code. We just want to write stuff from scratch. And we want to be in like in a safe typed language. And there was the security concern, which appealed to me as well. And at this time, I think they had the 1.0 release and, uh, and they could run a DNS and they could serve HTTP. And I think the only backend at the time was Zen or a Unix process. You could more or less you still can, 
you can compile this Mirage image to run as a Unix process. So this was just, this was all very appealing to me. I just had the language issue, right? So I don't know what come. So I read this book, did some exercises, and they had this pilot. I think they still have it. That's the Mirage Pioneer page, Mirage Pioneer Projects page. So basically, since they wanted to write everything, you know, Camel, so there was a bunch of stuff to be done. And I'm I'm a kernel slash networking guy, right? So for, I've implemented DNS in the past, and I wrote a bonjour MDNS implementation. So, okay, it needs to be something like this because I've, uh, I don't know about file systems and so on. And then there was this pitch for DHCP implementation. And then I wrote an email to Richard Mortier at the time. Said, Listen, I want to do this. I, so you have someone, I don't have much experience with Ocamal and so on. I mean, I can do this and so on, but I need a bigger project to actually learn. So basically, they wanted a DHCP library. They had a very simple implementation for a client and their setups. And then I started writing this DHCP implementation as a library. So it's, it's basically a library that you can build a server with it. And now you can also build a client with it. So it goes from serializing, deserializing the network packet and so on. And then the logic of a server and the logic of a client. And I think this was a project that actually made me understand, okay, why functional programming is awesome. Why this is really interesting stuff. So I think the idea was, um, I wrote like many versions until I was satisfied. And at this point, this was interesting because if you want to get into Okamo, the community is really good. Like they will jump with you and they will read your code. They will send you divs. I was pretty surprised on how easy this was. Like I was, was starting writing this DHCP stuff and then I got divs in like a month or so. So uh, the first implementation I had was basically, how do I deal with the IO, right? So Camel is not like Haskell. Haskell is completely pure, right? So if you want to do IO, you need monads and so on. And I don't know much about Haskell, so I wouldn't uh, dive much into it. So in Camel, you can have side effects, right? But I would say that in modern Camel, nobody uses the side effects or people try to code without it. But you can still. So my first implementation, basically, if you wanted to do I.O., you would pass a module to it. And then this module could be, I don't know, reading a packet from a file, reading from a socket or whatever you wanted to do. I was just mocking I.O. in this way. And it was more or less at this point I realized that I didn't really like the module system. This is too complex. There was a bunch of boilerplate. And I had side effects. And how do I write tests for it? And this was pretty much like in my beginning. So I was wondering if it's possible to write this completely side effect free. How do I write a DCP library that's completely side effect free? And then I talked to Hannes and he wrote a TLS implementation of kind of like awesome code. And we had some ideas on how to do it. So the library would stop doing IO and the entry point of the library would be you give a packet and a configuration. And then the reply is a new configuration, like I said, this new state and, and a possible reply. And you as the caller, as the user of the library, would then send the packet out or receive the packet. So I started to write this and and I think this clicked me. Like it became really quite apparent how easy it was to write bug free, or at least I think it's bug free, code if you just avoid all side effects, if you can concentrate them in one spot or something like this. So then I rewrote the library to be completely side effect free. And I was, then I started writing tests. And then I pretty much realized that I could write tests that I could just press a play button. Oh, I have my initial configuration. I have a packet and I press play. And then I try to see if every transition at every play I, I do makes sense. 
So this was awesome because the worst thing about working with network and demons and whatnot is that you need setups to test them, right? So if you want to test DHCP, you need VMs. It's a pain. You start like two or three VMs and another. So. so I could pretty much do all the testing without any setup. An ML file that presses play. And then I became fascinated. I said, ah, we need to rewrite the world in our camera. But then I got totally sold on the idea. And I think that's pretty much it, my my background slash beginning with Ocamol. And so you've been doing this relatively recently, and you said you're still doing this on the side. And for your job, you're dealing with kernels and you're dealing with the C-based languages. So when you look at Mirage OS and people are selling these things, but you're still doing DHCP, or you've got a SSH project you're working on. We've got all this other stuff out there that Mirage is putting out to work on Zen and Unix and some of this other stuff. What is, in your mind, as someone who does the normal systems programming language, and I use that term loosely in the broad definition, that says, oh, you got to be like a C language or maybe a Rust or Go nowadays, but all these other languages don't really fit as systems languages. Where are you finding this fit in your world view based off actually having done kernel stuff and now working on this stuff? And what's that balance of what makes a systems language in your perspective and what makes a good one? And where are those things that may or may not fall short on either side? If I take a slightly different perspective is most systems programming you need to do is control, right? I mean... If we split like systems programming into two areas, like control and data. So control would be all this, for example, DHCP, I'll call a control protocol. It doesn't matter how fast you are. It doesn't, it's not a performance thing. It's, so if you're talking HTTP, okay, now that, that's a data thing, right? You need to be fast and so on. DNS, it's a bunch of both and so on. So the historical reasons, I think, for people using C, it's because, well, it was portable in the 80s, right? was pretty portable nowadays, not so much. And everybody was just traditionally writing this in C. So the good libraries were in C and so on. And I think, to me, what matters is writing bug-free code. It's, it's code that I can write and I can say, well, I completely trust this. I vouch for this. Other things that are interesting, of course, time of development, right? So I keep thinking, like, what if I had written a DHCP library in C? I think first it would take like much more time. It would be in a way much less portable because I would have to deal with the intrinsics of every different system. But to be honest, I think we're starting to see more stuff getting out of the C domain, right? There's OCaml itself, I would say, had a problem because uh, OCaml is this language developed by these French dudes in India, right? They're just marvelous language scientists and so on, like really brilliant people. But they're terrible in building like tooling and a community and so on. And this happened very recently in OCaml. So if you actually look at the original docs in OCaml, OCaml is considered a systems programming language. The, the guy who wrote it is pretty much like a Unix guy. And he said, well, I don't want to write stuff in C. I want to write in ML. But he's mainly, a, he's mainly a linguist guy, right? So OCaml was really developed in academia. And for example, you couldn't link a library in OCaml. There was no predefined there was no decent builder. Oh, I want to use this library. How do I link against my problem? So all this was very convoluted and the language never actually sparked. It was only like very recently, like five years ago, 
where some guys at Cambridge and you know, Camel Labs and, and us, they started to build all this tooling and so on, right? But originally, my original point is like, originally, Camel was to be a systems programming language, right? Yeah, I think it just never took off because it was just like a very interesting language without anything else. And this has been happening recently. So I honestly don't see much of like the difficulties that you would have to rewrite most of the stuff that we do in C, you know, Camel's there. At least like the control perspective systems. Uh, the data ones, I think, for example, I don't understand how like, how the Camel compiler work. I don't know. I know very few about the runtime and how the garbage collector works. And when you're writing performance critical software, it doesn't mean that you, you can't have this stuff. You can have this stuff, but you actually need to understand it, right? So how does this get collected and so on? So I think this is a big barrier, actually, because... If you look at a very common protocol, HTTP, right? Everybody has a HTTP. So there's two things you need HTTP to do, or if you're writing the HTTP, three things. So it needs to be secure, it needs to be fast, it needs to integrate with stuff. And fast is a big issue because the scales are huge. And you need to be really good to embrace this, I think, in, in a garbage collected language because you need to understand much more stuff. If you're writing in C, you know, it's just portable assembly. And it's very easy to reason about code. So I think... Because I'm mostly a performance guy, so I think this is something for me. But, but I think the major problem is, is the lack of libraries, the lack of ecosystems. So let's say you want to implement like curses program or something like Moot. Or is there a decent curses binding for Alcamel? Yeah, there is, but it was written like eight years ago. And is it decent? I don't know. So I think part of it is because it's fragmented. Like the original stuff is written in C and Sometimes you have decent bindings, sometimes you have not. But I honestly think this is changing. So, for example, I work, I, and not myself, but my, my co-workers, we work a lot with Isaac APMD. It's, it's like an Ike protocol. It's a key exchange protocol for IPsec. Right? And we have two implementations in C. So this is the stuff that there's no sense to be written in C today, for, in my perspective. It's not performance critical. It's, of course, it's security critical. But it's basically a control protocol, right? There's nothing really special about it. You need timers and you need to be, be able to send a packet and receive a packet. And you don't want to have bugs. So I think this kind of stuff, that's like the easiest thing to tackle. I actually had the idea of writing an, an Ike implementation. I just never did. So yeah, and to be honest, I think the ability that, that we have like decent functional programming languages, it's, it's actually with an ecosystem with a build system, with more or less a community. I think that's very recent, right? If you look at the eight, is what's the alternative to C? Oh, that's right in Perl. Oh, come on, right? That's, nobody's going to be happy. I have nothing against Perl, but it's, I don't know. I can't imagine myself doing a big project in Perl. So I think the thing is like, it's just new. I think we'll get there. I don't think there's a much technological issues. And you just touched on the HTTPS as a, kind of combination of data and control. And I had Nick Swamy on talking about F-Star, talking about how one of their things is to make a provable HTTPS system. That sounds in line with a lot of this Mirage OS stuff, where the control side, especially if you're talking about this key protocol exchange or DHCP or SSH stuff that you're working on, where there actually is a specific protocol, things go back and forth. How have you found it from your side of developing these in a strongly typed system where you can start to say, 
I've got this protocol and it's got to be at this format and I know that I can accept it if it's good and in that format and defining that stuff. And how have you found thinking the control flow where you say the OCaml stuff fits in really well to actually fit in and what are some of the strengths that people may should be starting to look at OCaml or Haskell or Idris or whatever these languages are that start moving you down this route that sells you on OCaml that says, yeah, I can be sure that there's no bugs here versus I might have had a void pointer passed in on my C level and or a buffer overflow kind of, and now we still get these heart bleed kind of things. So if you think about that, if you just think about DTP for a while, right? So one of the very common operations is a lookup for a lease. You get a packet and you look up for a lease, right? So and the lease is like the entry saying, well, you already have an IP and the expiry date is X. So what you're actually testing is you're looking for information. So you're testing for the existence of something, right? So for the functional programming audience, this is pretty basic, but coming from a C background, that was not for me. So the most common way you'd represent this in an original C language is with a pointer, right? So either you get a pointer and there's something there, or you get null and and you can't find it, right? So it's really easy to discard to return. Like you're not forced to test if it's not null. So you just call this function lookup, and then you get this pointer. And you might be careful enough to test it, or you might not. Not even entering the, the idea if, if I have to free this object. That's secondary stuff. I don't think that's very. But so in OCaml, you'd represent this as an optional value. So you have a type, and let's say this type is lease. And then the return type of your lookup function is option lease. And there's no way you can discard this. It's like it doesn't compile. So you do a lookup and then you have to match the result. And the result is either none or some value. And you have to do this. There's no way for you to make the call compile without enforcing this behavior. So I think this is a very good case of just removing the responsibility from the human side and putting on a machine level. It's very easy to be careful and to make sure that everything is correct when you're the only one writing your own project, right? But once you have like two people, it's already different. So this is one thing that OCaml just removes. It doesn't matter. You can have 100 people. They will all have to do the proper check. If you change the type in one side of the code, there's no type promotion. I have to fix all the parts in the code. And that makes me feel also secure. So, for example, like, and if you're just talking about serialization of objects, I have this network packet, and I need to build something. Well, first of all, I cannot build my object without having all the data because it doesn't compile otherwise. So I cannot have like an uninitialized member. Or something. And then if I add a new member, I'll have to go through all the code that actually creates that object and fix it. While in C, if I would just add a member there, and then I had a code that allocates, and then I forget to initialize it. It's, of course, you can do all this proper in C, but it's just discipline. And discipline is bad because we're humans and so on. And I think that's a lot of what I meant about just trusting the compiler. Like all these silly errors, because this is really silly, right? This is unintentional mistakes. It's not something that you thought was the correct way, and you implemented it, but you tried A, and now you did B. So in OCaml, if you try A, you do A. Maybe A is wrong, but... In C, sometimes you try A and you end up in Z and so on. And I'll say that basically just, just two things for me is that they're already like a lot, to be honest. And you can have like even minor things like 
how do you express variance like in Okamo, right? So if I have a record, then this record can have two types. Like it can be either a person or a car, let's say, right? Well, every time I'm handling this object, I'm forced to deal with all the cases. Otherwise, it doesn't compile. But you can still make mistakes. You can put a default case. So I think it's a good practice to never have a default case. But this is really basic stuff. And it makes a tremendous amount of difference. And then, of course, as I said, functional programming or Camel and whatnot, they go well with not having side effects. So it's easy. It's easier for you to program stuff not thinking about having side effects. While in any other language or, or not, it's you basically don't care. You don't even think about side effects. It's just, oh, yeah, I need I call read here and my program blocks. It doesn't matter. And it's so easy to test side effect code for you. And I would say, like, people can come with all the complex explanations and so on. Just how much easier it is to test for me, it's, it's, it's a huge point. And then you kind of touched on it a little bit with your different record types. When you're looking at some of these protocols and the control flows and looking at the RFCs or whatever you do to say, here's how DHCP works or here's how this whatever other thing works, have you found that that translates nicely from the specification in the RFC style documents to, well, I get a packet that looks like this. Well, I can now pattern match and if this thing is here, I fall into this case and translating the domain of that RFC or whatever variation of standard that you're supposed to be implementing back into your code in OCaml versus how you would translate it into C or another language like that when you would work on it across languages? I would say like in a general term, it's you don't need much to represent whatever protocol it is, right? You need some kind of record or structure that every language has it and so on. So there wasn't any particular like difficulties, I would say. Well, you need to think recursively sometimes, right? You need to be able to do recursion with some easiness, but otherwise, like, C is not very expressful at all, right? It's, like, not expressive at all, right? It's just structures and and integers, basically. So if you think about it, like, you can even have dynamic lists in C. It's something you want very often. So in a sense, I'd say it was easier to actually match the protocol and so on and come all types and pass them around. The harder part was basically the Yokamo buffer implementation that everybody uses now, CSTRUT. You can make mistakes there. That's kind of easy to make mistakes. It's mostly working by side effects and so on. But you do it in a very smallish part of the code. But otherwise, I, I don't think so. There wasn't any, any major. It fit okay. No, no special difficulties, seriously. And that's what I was wondering, because you were talking about some of the control, and you're like, oh, if I get this state, and I get the data, and then I return a new state, sometimes it's like, from what I've heard, is those ML languages make it easy to represent that stuff, whereas you fall into the trap of the giant if or case statements elsewhere in the C languages that aren't as expressive and say, oh, wait, this state is required or not to go through. So, you know, come all like, what people do to get rid of the huge switches, the huge variant stuff, is basically use functors and, and modules and so on. I must say I, I'm not a big fan. I'm quite pedestrian in this. I really like the big switches, to be honest, as long as I'm forced to deal with all the cases, right? which is not the case in C. So the way I do it, it's a very pedestrian way. Basically, if I need to express multiple things, it's a huge variant. So for example, in the ECP, we have a, there's DHCP options and there's 256 DHCP options. 
So I have one variant with 256 cases. So if you look at call, like there's a call, something like a serialized option, right? So it's one switch with 256 entries. I think that's pretty easy to read, but your mileage may vary. And I guess comparing that with if you've got these 256 options that you know are typed, because I'm assuming you have a record type that's an enumeration, is that the same way you approach it in C or you would used to approach it in C or you do approach it in C now after you've been exposed to the OCaml stuff? That's a very good question. I think I try not to leak my OCaml stuff into C. I think the first thing I noticed is OCaml made me a lazy C programmer because I start trusting stuff. And in C, it's like a war. You can never trust anything. So I think once you start trying to compare things from other languages, especially something so different into C or any other language, you start getting these monsters. There's a culture in C and people have been doing this for 35 years. So now I learned OCaml and I don't really think that it doesn't matter how much I learn about OCaml. There isn't much I can add to this 35-year-old culture. They are already more or less picked in what the language can do. And, and they, through evolution, just language evolution, if you're in a decent community that knows how to do proper C and so on, they already more or less ruled out all the bad things. And so I remember this in my previous job. There was this really smart guy, loved Haskell, was like one of the smartest guys I've ever and he was trying to port some of these ideas to C and so on. And then he was to build a type for everything. And I said, yeah, but, you know, there's no type inference. So you have to build like a header that's like 2,000 lines now. I understand where you're coming from, but this is worse. It's a sad world, but this is worse. This is a very limited language. Too. So that's at least how I feel today about Ocamola. I would say like Ocamola hindered my C abilities. It didn't help at all. I think it just made them worse. It makes you easier to think about side effects as a discipline thing. So what are the side effects of this function? But you would do this in a way or another. So I try to keep them separate. It's like hobby and work. And that makes sense. And I've heard a lot of people talk about the monsters you create by forcing something into another language. And it was the question around when you go back and forth between them. And as you said, you're like, I really like this part of OCaml, and as you said with the Haskell person, where but it's like, oh, then it means I got to create a two thousand line header file. Okay, yeah, it'd be nice to have types here, but I don't get it. But I can pull the purity back, and that's nice because I understand that I can now test this part of my C program, and it's that kind of balance of getting at it. So we're getting close to time as well, but we still got some time, and I guess still got some more questions to ask you. But is there anything else? so far that you think we should bring up and discuss more. I want to get into a little bit of your SSH at a high level, maybe dig into a little bit more about Mirage OS for people to find some, but is there anything else that you think we should cover that we haven't gotten to yet? Just a small bit. So when I built this DHCP thing and I pretty much I could trust the code, then reality comes, right? So there aren't, Mirage is not deployed like Linux is. So how many people are actually running my So my wife finds the bugs, right? And I have like 12 devices at home. And, so, and this was like before. So Mirage got considerably bigger now. And so if you're using the DCP library, DCP Mirage you're using this. And recently we got fuzzling tests. So they got this, uh, they fuzzle all the inputs and so on. And they pretty much found one bug and one minor bug. And then I started trusting this, right? Okay, because before this was just like an impression. 
it seems that there are no obvious bugs. I mean, it seems it's stable enough. Then I got this fuzz list of uh, mean depressant that is like wonderful work. And she wrote the client too. And she more or less proved, okay, this is decent enough. There's this bug here and this is minor thing there and so on. And then I got a mail from, because Docker bought the Mirage guys, right? They had a company and Docker bought them. There was a unicorn systems. So Docker is doing like a lot of Mirage stuff now. So for example, if you're using Docker for Mac, that's a lot of Mirage code running. It's out of default. And you're using my DHCP library. I said, okay. And then, so how many installations? We have? Ah, just 200,000 a day. So, okay, fine. And it is working, working, fine. This was very rewarding because it was the first time I actually got something in this scale. And then I matched my perception to more or less reality. And then the, this Linux kit project from Docker, apparently the, the first thing they did was write a DHCP client and they also used the library. So, so I'm somehow involved with Linux Kit now, which I don't even know how it works, but it's there. So yeah, that's just to more or less report that this was the time I matched. Uh, okay, my impressions seem to be correct. I'm not totally insane. And I was going to ask about that impression and being proved by the SSH library you're working on. It sounds like you've already got good body of proof that says, yeah, the things they say are true when you get this to compile you pretty much got a working piece of software unless you just flat out screw up a logic and you don't understand what it is you're building. But if you understand what you're building and it compiles, you're pretty sure it works. So your SSH is still kind of proving that same thing as well. Yeah, my SSH now is... So, so the, idea is, the idea is to build a library where you can build servers and you can embed the servers in unikernels. So my original idea was, okay, so I have this unikernel running on Zen at home. And it just does DHCP, right? That's all it does. It doesn't have a TCP stack and so on. So what if I want to have like status data? I would like to SSH to it and say, show me leases or something. That's why I started this SSH library. And also because I'm in a very, very privileged position to write SSH because my team leader is the main open SSH developer. So that makes things really easy, right? I don't even read the RFC. I just ask him. So at this point... I can exchange keys. I can work with CBC and CTR, the two encryption modes. And HMAC, I support MD5, SHA1, and SHA2. And I can get to the point where we are authenticated with a password or a host key. But this is not totally done. But I can talk to OpenSSH, and I can exchange the keys, accept the connection, and so on. Because SSH is divided in three layers, basically. They have the transport layer, then they have the authentication layer, then they have the channels layer. So the transport layer, you negotiate a key and uh, change the encryption keys and blah, blah, blah. And then the authentication is like usually a password or a host key. And then the channels is you request like a shell or you request something like a data connection. Or so I didn't even get to channels yet. So what I'm doing so far is I can get to the authentication point. And I chose this for three reasons, basically, because I wanted to do show leases at home and see the DHCP, because my team leader works in it, right? And because DHCP is like the most simple protocol you can think of. It's one request, one reply. The state is late leases. It's a lease database. It's, this is like computer science 101 if you, if you want to write a protocol, right? I think it's a great exercise. 
And SSH is like, no. SSH is the opposite of that. So just the fact that you're working with TCP and it streams and you can have partial records and there's much more state transition. So a lot of this is, and I'm trying to write this completely pure. There's absolutely no side effects, right? The only side effect is the desirable one, which is, so how do you collect entropy in an OCaml environment? So I use this cryptographic library called NoCrypto, and you initialize the seed through a side effect. You say, oh, this is the seed. This is when you're running a test program. If you're running on Mirage, for instance, it reseeds the entropy with hardware events and like, like should be done, like with proper stuff. So this is the stuff I wanted to be side effects. My first design I said, oh, what if I could like pass the entropy as a parameter, right? So that's the most stupid thing because somebody will always pass the same, right? It won't work. So this is the one case I can think that it has to be a side effect. But anyway, when I'm writing tests, I can initialize with just a single seed. And then I always have like deterministic outputs. So how do I build such complex protocol with, for example, DHP? The only timer that you could have is... The RFC, for example, says that before you give out the lease, you have the option to ping the machine, ping that address to see if anybody else has it. Well, everybody blocks ICMP, so that's pointless. I went to this. This was the only case I would have a timer, right? So just removing the requirement of this timer, it's, it just completely simplifies the flow. It becomes request, reply, request, reply. So in SSH, this is much more complex. Like one request might involve three or four replies. And so, for example, while you're negotiating a key, you might want to send four replies, but two replies, you negotiated the key between the reply uh, two and three, so on. So the first two will have to go out without being encrypted, and the third and fourth will have to be encrypted. But I already created them, in a sense, so they're already in my state to be sent out. Yeah, so that required like lots of engineering to try to get into this point. How do I organize stuff that I can more or less reach a similar setup that I have with DHCP? How do I pretty much convert this into requests and replies in the most obvious way? There's no way that the caller can be that simpler. So how do I implement timeout in SSH? Well, so far, I didn't need to implement any of them. I'm just working around them. But that's a problem. Like, How do I properly implement timeouts without side effects. Harness to this is an OCaml TLS, and I think that's that's pretty much the best OCaml library out there. It's like purely functional. It's, there's a really good paper about it, like it's performant, it's used, it's... So I need to see how he did this and pretty much just mimic. Because in a way, in the end of SSH, if I reach the same conclusions he did, I think I'm in the right track. And then the other difficulties is like, I'm really not a cryptographer or a cryptography guy at all. The training I had at the university was really poor. And I don't want to be one of those Twitter messages that said, oh, another idiot writing crypto did a mistake. It's like all the time. So I really try to just do what people who seem to know what they're doing do. So I just mimic them in a way. So yeah, there'll be dragons. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if I make like a huge mistake and so on. So now, for example, the one thing that it's, there's no way to do in OCaml, for instance. That's something that kind of worries me. No, it doesn't worry me, but it's a problem. So, for example, how do I zero out memory in OCaml? You can't, right? So I have a key, a private key, and it's an OCaml object. And then I 
I renegotiate a key or, or I would, I'll pretty much free that. I don't need that anymore. And I, but I don't want to have that key hanging out in my memory. Well, come on, there's no way for me to somehow tell the garbage truck, this memory needs to be zeroed out like ASAP. You cannot have this. So this is a problem. So if you read OpenSSH code, it's like, and I know I'm biased, but it's really good code. It's like awesome code. He reads the key from the disk, allocates an object, uses it, frees, puts it back, zeroes out the memory before actually calling free, because if you just free, it's still there. So if somebody gets a hold of the memory of your program and tries to scan for a key, you will have a hard time. You have to have the timing right and stuff like that. So this is something I cannot do with OCaml, and I cannot do, I think, with most garbage collected languages. So this is a feature request if somebody hears, right? Give me a way to say that this should be collected ASAP, as zero out or something. And you mentioned your team lead actually is one of the main people in charge of an SSH project. When you go to him with this progress, if he's doing this in the C languages, and maybe some assembler, depending on how much stuff they have to dig into, given the ability to dig into assembler, what does he say when you solve these problems and turn these around and start asking for new things? Is he impressed with the pace that you're going? Is he is he thinking, hey, there's something here? Or is there any interaction that's kind of selling him to the power of OCaml as you're doing this when you go ask him these questions? Well, I'm, I'm actually progressing kind of slowly because it's like too much. So there isn't much impression on the pace. Let's put it like this. He's very supportive in it. I think in a way, like he did this, he started doing, as I say, open as ages, I think like what? I was in school, so like 20 years ago or something, right? 15 years ago. But there isn't much interaction. It's not like checking the code and whatnot. Like it's just very, very supportive and helps me out and so on. And again, I think it's also too soon to draw any conclusion and whatnot. And at any rate, like I'm not trying to like uh, replace openSS it's not just a ridiculous idea it's pointless right because people should replace open SSL somebody work on it and so on but it's really well established and so there isn't much point and since he's not really interested in OCaml also functional programming I don't think you I mean he's too busy to be on I don't think we'll have much of this exchange but okay and you never know with just if he was the sole contributor doing this for a while and you're like oh I already got the uh, some of this negotiation and he's like Okay, that I remember how long that took me when I was first starting out trying to learn all this. So that's what I was wondering. That could be, but then again, also like the the sample is poisoned because I could pretty much just ask him, and he probably had to figure out himself like twenty years ago, right? So it's so I had a, a clear cut, let's say. So we're getting close to time. Is there anything that you want to make mention to? Do you have, I don't know if you go to any conferences or presenting anything about OCaml because you're involved with this on the side. Where can people find out more about your projects, more about Mirage OS if they want to just find a project? You may kind of mention there was a project page for Mirage if this intrigues people and they are looking for projects to practice their OCaml. Is there any suggestions you have to people to get started and get familiar with OCaml and maybe some of the stuff that you're doing and find some examples? You mentioned the TLS project was a good example of how you handle some of the stuff in OCaml. Are there any recommendations around there that you want to lead people to? If you want to get into OCaml, pretty much buy the real world OCaml or read it online, it's free. So the Mirage documentation project has pretty much... I think they still have it. You have to check, but 
they have like stuff that they want and a level of difficulty. So, ah, we'd like to have a syslog implementation. We would have like a DHCP implementation. And then there's also a mentor there. So that's pretty good. So if you're starting out and you want to do something, there's a list of things and somebody will walk you through with it. So I'd say that that worked for me. I wouldn't recommend anything else because that, that's what I did and it worked for me. And the nice thing, it's, it's a pretty new community, right? So it's easy to get into it. You're not joining like a 20-year-old, really, really well, super established community and so on. There aren't like gods and, and queens and so on yet. So the IRC channel is pretty decent or common. You know, IRC, there's always some not so friendly dudes. That This is pretty good. Most of the dudes are very nice. And then the Mirage channel on IRC as well. I think that would be my recommendation. And my stuff, basically, I just have my GitHub account. And I have a Twitter account, but I really don't do much conferences. Yeah, I think I've never been to one in Europe here, actually. And then there's the Mirage hackathons, which are actually open hackathons. They're usually in Marrakesh. We had three already. And there's an, the next one is the end of the year. They're open. I'm not sure if this one will be open because it's, we're kind of full. And a lot of stuff just happens there. So and there's a lot of like community building. And so we just get together in Marrakesh for seven days and we write code. And uh, it seems to be working nice. And I think that's it. I don't know much about like other conferences, like functional programming related stuff. Okay. And we'll get your GitHub and Twitter account, but do you have any other places that you kind of outline your learnings or anything, a Tumblr, Medium, blog feed, or anything else that you put out? Or those are the GitHub and Twitter are the best places to find you online. Yeah, no, that's it. That's it. Okay. And we'll get those included in the show notes as well. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Cristiano, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Insightful to learn. And you even dropped a couple of things and news pieces that I hadn't heard of about Mirage OS and being folded into Docker, which I'll have to go look out more. But it's kind of exciting to see they're picking up steam there as well on at least usage improving out the idea that says... This stuff is used, it's starting to get used more heavily, and look, we're proving the fact that these things are systems languages, so thanks for giving your perspective on that, sharing everything you've done, your learnings, and especially the perspective of someone who has done systems work and actual deep-level systems work on machines and how that compares to the work you do in OCaml. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Oh, man, thanks for having me. It was really nice. Thanks for having me. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.